Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 8 and 9. You've heard me... uh, multiple times now say that we're studying through the book of Matthew, and I've kind of grabbed the the altitude of 15,000 feet. Uh, We're at a 15,000 foot walk through or fly through uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. If we were studying at about a 500 foot altitude, uh, by the time we finish today, chapter nine, we probably would have been in 24 Sundays uh, of of doing it. So far we've been seven Sundays. If we would have been at 500 feet, we'd be about 24 Sundays, about six months of time covering it, just to give you a perspective. If we would have been studying this about 5,000 feet, today would be about Sunday number 15. 15 or 16, Uh, but we're at 15,000 feet, so today is number seven. Uh, It saved me a lot of reading. Um, I'm just kidding on that. Well, kind of. But we've week number seven. I want for you to understand this because part of my objective is that I want to equip you on how to study God's word. And one of the ways of doing that is at 15,000 foot altitude. By the way, 5,000 foot is wonderful. 500 foot, wonderful. All of them are viable and worthwhile approaches to studying scripture as we go through it. And with each of those kind of altitudes, there's key questions that come up and you ask about how you are studying through them, whether it's paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, or section by section of it. In fact, if we were gonna be doing this at 35,000 foot altitude, we would be doing the entire Gospel of Matthew in one Sunday. It would be just like a big picture overview of it. But what we are asking in the key question of this at 15,000 feet is what is Matthew's core authorial intent? Matthew is the human writer being moved along by the Spirit of God. Matthew is writing in such a way that he is moving an idea. He has an intention. He's not just telling a story. And our key question at this is, what is his authorial intent? What is it, I could say, what is his authorial argument as he goes through it? Not that he's mad, but what is he building a case for? How is he shaping that argument? And that's the core thing that I'm really keyed in on for us to be able to see through the Gospel of Matthew. So far, I could sum it up kind of in three sections so far. Chapters one and two, uh, he's been about see the lineage. See the lineage, see the human lineage, see the divine lineage. Chapters three and beginning of four, or mostly through four, uh, see the entrance. Here he comes, feet on the ground, 400 years of prophetic silence from God until John shows up, and then Christ shows up. And then he goes into the desert, then he calls a few disciples at the end of chapter four, then we start seeing the core ministries of Jesus. Matthew lays that out, three of them, preaching, teaching, and healing. In fact, look at Matthew chapter four, verse 23. At the end of chapter four, verse 23, Matthew says, and he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, take a look at chapter nine, verse 
35, 935. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. In the early chapters here, Matthew wants us to see not only his lineage, not only his entrance, but what his ministry is, how he is doing what he is doing here. And he puts it out in these three on the table. He's already summarized his preaching. In uh, chapter four, verse 17, he simply says, uh, Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the summation of Jesus' preaching, if you will. Then we find out, last Sunday, chapters five through seven, Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus teaching. It's really important to understand that. Verse five, chapter two, it says he taught them. In the Greek, it's using these specific words on purpose. It's given us this extensive idea of Jesus' teaching. And so, after those couple chapters, Matthew has essentially, he's, he's summarized his preaching, he's expanded on his teaching, he's noted his healing over in chapter four, but, but Matthew, I think, is compelled to talk to us more about his healing ministry. He's compelled to talk to us about our healing, his healing ministry. So why would he spend all the time talking about these two chapters, chapters eight and nine, which just is a series of healings that Jesus does. Why would he spend the time with the expense of papyra to write that? Friends, there is something very foundationally important to see in these two chapters today. In fact, for me, I think these two chapters and what they hit on are core for me being drawn to who Christ is. Because if Jesus is just a teacher and a preacher, it can be all truth, little love. And I just wanna say, if Jesus is all truth in our face, preaching, repent, teaching, everything is upside down in God's economy, and he's preaching and teaching, preaching and teaching, preaching and teaching, preaching and teaching. I gotta tell you, after a little while, I'm out. Because it's just exhausting. If we're all truth and no love, you don't like hanging around those people. No elbowing each other about that comment. Listen, if Jesus is a symbol banging all truth all the time in our face, 1 Corinthians 13, he is a clanging symbol and a noisy gong. But here, he's not that. We're gonna see it here, summarily, in two chapters. Don't worry, we're gonna finish on time. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let me read end of chapter seven, starting verse 28 to the beginning of chapter eight. And when Jesus finished these sayings, these teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. We talked about that last Sunday. 
chapter 8, and when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Okay, got the setting? They're astonished with Jesus. They're following this Jesus. By the way, big astonishment drives big following. Small astonishment draws small following. And here these people have big astonishment, and so they're following. Here we go, heads up, because this follow me conversation is now gonna tell us something about the very heart and core of who Christ is. And we begin with, Jesus cleanses the cut off. Jesus cleanses the cut off. Chapter eight, verse two. And behold, a leper came. By the way, a leper, we don't really have much familiarity with that nowadays. We think of a person whose skin is falling off. Uh, Actually, that was somewhat the case, but it was more than that back in Jesus' day. It was not just the leper of skin falling off. It was all kinds of kind of skin diseases, and one of the things that came out about that was when you had these kinds of diseases, you were cut off from the temple. And not only were these people kind of put away because they don't want to cause sickness all around, but uh, they're cut off from being able to go and participate in the temple. It has huge ramifications. Behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, leave me alone, don't touch me. No, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Friends, I don't think we understand the cultural dynamic of that in that day. That was a radical, radical, risky move. And he touched him. And he said, I will. And he said, be clean. Now there's a concise sentence. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. If if we were more at about uh, 5,000 foot, we'd spend time, but we're gonna keep on going because we're at 15,000 foot. Next, Jesus heals the outsider. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. By the way, a centurion, that would be a Roman centurion. That would mean that this man is a Gentile. That would mean that this is a Gentile servant. Uh, Can I just say, back in that day, it doesn't get much lower than that on the whole structural line of economy. He's a Gentile, and this is a Gentile servant. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, uh, with soldiers under me. And, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you that no one in Israel have I found such faith. Remember, this is a Gentile. I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said to Jesus, uh, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed how, how, how quickly? 
immediately, at that very moment. Like, no time delay. It didn't, like, have to take a while for the vibes to, to go across the airwaves and to enter into it. It's just, like, done. If we were at 5,000 feet, we'd spend more time talking about the wonderful things, but I am so setting up you up for incredible lunch conversations today and incredible times in God's word this week. Go for it. Dig in. But that's number two. Number three, Jesus cures the mother-in-law. No jokes. Yes, Jesus cures the mother-in-law too. And when Jesus had entered whose house? Peter's house. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and her fever left her, like cured. And she rose and began to serve him. No recovery time needed. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He cleanses the cutoff, he heals the outsider, he cures the mother-in-law. Are you impressed? We should be. Because, like, who has the authority to do this? Who has the power to do this? Who, who has the right to do this? I mean, I think we could all agree this is beyond the normal human. Agreed? Agreed. A question as I go through just these three, is there any promise in the text that these uh, miraculous heal healings experienced would be everyone's experience on earth? No, actually. Why do I bring that up? Be very careful as you're studying God's word. A narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. Narrative text, which is what this is, telling about events that happened, is what happened at that time, in that moment, for that reason. And oftentimes, a lot of bad theology comes out of taking narrative text and applying it as though it is the standard for all things. Narrative is descriptive of what happened, not prescriptive for all times, all things, all situations. In fact, verse 17 points out the purpose. It points out here that Matthew is really listing these because he's be helping us to see, because we weren't there, he's helping us to see and understand that scripture had said that the Christ would come healing diseases. And so this is what he is doing. I mean, it's kind of like there's a puzzle out there that Matthew is helping us put the pieces together. He begins Matthew chapter one, verse one, this is Jesus the Christ, essentially. And then he's putting the pieces in place for us to be able to see. And this is one of them. Scripture said that the Messiah would come and he would do healings. And we see this one doing that. It's one more piece pointing us to who Jesus is in the whole redemptive picture of God's plan. And then we have this follow me conversation, I'm calling it. You can see it in your notes there. There's a follow me conversation. Matthew inserts uh, one more of these in here. Uh, note this, there's healings and then there's a conversation about following him. By the way, pulling off of what we just saw at the end of chapter seven, 
teaching and your astonishment with Jesus' teaching impacts your following of Jesus. When you are astonished by Jesus, you will follow him. And here there is the same kind of conversation. When these healings are going on, there's following conversations. Let's read this conversation, uh, verse 18 through 22. And when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe. We've met scribes already, uh, or they've been noted. Uh, Jesus taught unlike the scribes. And now here's a scribe. I wonder if he's going to be ticked or what he's going to do. And the scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. By the way, that's really cool. Because not only was the average person who heard the Sermon on the Mount incredibly stunned and astonished by Jesus' teaching, but even the teachers were astonished with his teaching. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus has kind of this rather from, I'm just going to leave it here, from a 50,000 foot, kind of a bizarre statement. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, my statement was, I will follow you. What does that have anything to do with my statement? I don't have the time to go into it, but I would encourage you to consider and look into it. I want to follow you wherever you go. Okay, awesome. But I just want for you to know, I don't have a home like foxes have, and I don't have a home like birds have. Still want to follow? How amazing is this, by the way, this statement just on the side? That Jesus, the creator of all things, when he comes on all things that he's created, he doesn't even have a home. But he will one day when there is a new heaven and a new earth. Not yet. Not yet. I will follow you. That's cool. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow, that sounds rough. You can talk about it. Back to the miracles. Jesus calms the fearful. Oh, one of my favorite accounts in all the scripture. Mark chapter four expounds it. And when he had gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. Mark chapter four, these are his 12 disciples, essentially, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. By the way, I forgot to mention one thing. All of these accounts are not in chronological order. Matthew does not care about the order of the accounts. He's trying to grab order. Some of these actually happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Some of them happen after the Sermon on the Mount. He's not concerned about order with it because this doesn't fit within the order of things. He's trying to prove a bigger point. Sorry for that. My notes just passed through my head. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Actually, Mark chapter four says, don't you care? Matthew's being kind. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid? You have a li- you, oh, you have little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and they were 
How calm? Perfectly. They were greatly calmed. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? That is the million-dollar question. Who is this? Who can do this? Someone who stands up and speaks a word. Actually, it's two. Speaks two word in the Greek. And everything stops. Who can do that? Man. Power. Jesus calms the fearful and Jesus liberates the tormented. And when he came to the other side, this actually does follow right after the crossing. You can see in chapter 5 of Mark. And when he came to the other side of the country of the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him uh, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, oh, how do they say this? You know, like in a movie, it's like, what have you? I don't know how it's done. (laughs) But that's the idea, okay? These guys are speaking, but yet these are really demons speaking. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Interesting. Even after that statement of who is this, we find the statement that even the demons know who he is. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Lunch conversation. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. Matthew's just so succinct. Go! So they came out, went into the pigs, and behold, even, by the way, even demons obey. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him, to leave the region. How intriguing is that? He liberates the tormented. Chapter nine, Jesus remedies the paralyzed. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, by the way, how cool is that? He saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to them, this man is blaspheming. Why is he blaspheming? You tell me. Yeah, who can forgive sins? Who walks around and goes, "Uh, your sins are forgiven. Um, Your sins are forgiven. If I was doing that, throw me out. I have no authority to do that. And that's why they were upset, and they should be. Jesus is making a divine statement that only divinity can make. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he then said to the paralytic, oh, can you just imagine this confrontation where these dudes are like, you're a blasphemer. He's like, I know exactly what you're thinking. By the way, watch this. 
rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, bam, and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. By the way, what an interesting statement. They were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. He calms the fearful, he liberates the tormented, he remedies the paralyzed. And then we have this uh, other follow me conversation. Verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Matthew, I wonder if that's the same Matthew. Yeah, it is. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. God, understand, a rabbi, a, a teacher, and the, the ones from your own people who you dislike the most, who you think should be the last people invited to this get-together, they are together with him. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. (laughs) I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And all God's people said, Follow me. And he followed him. Verse 14. Then the disciples, the followers of John, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, your followers, do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Can you please tell me what this is all about? No, that's all right, because we're at 15,000 foot. Let me make an observation right now before I lose you in this. Have you noticed that what Matthew is doing, I would suggest is very similar to almost the, the feel of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is like, bam, 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 all these teaching, 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 teaching. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter eight and it's like, bam, 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 all these like uh, sort of combined, sort of not combined things and elements about uh, Jesus' healing. Hang on, we're gonna get to the end just like we got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and we're gonna find out why this is really important for us to know from Matthew and don't go to the end yet. Cheaters. Three more. Jesus makes well the daughters. Verse 18, chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. I gotta tell you, I don't think I would have that kind of thinking that someone could do that. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered, this is on the way, a discharge of blood for 12 years. By the way, we learn in one of the other gospels that the daughter who died was 12 years old. I do think there is some 
helpful insight. As long as this girl has been alive, this woman has been struggling in her pain. Came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, (laughs) why would they be having a band outside? Because this is the way things were done when someone died in the day. You would come, you would have people playing instruments, you would literally have professional instrument players, you'd have professional mourners. And I realize as creepy and as odd as that sounds, hey, go think of some of the things we do in our funerals that are kind of odd to the rest of the world. But this is how they would do it, so this is what was going on. The point here is, is Matthew, I think, is letting us know everyone knew this girl was dead. Verse 24, and he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but what? Now, there is a great understanding of what death is. And they laughed at him, And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. I'm pausing for emphasis. He came into a dead body, grabbed her hand, and she what? And the report of this went through all that district. He makes well the daughters. Jesus gives sight to the blind. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Be very careful how you grab a hold of that understanding. Being a 15,000 foot, one of the things that's really hard for me today is I want to dive into a number of these things. But there's a tendency to grab a hold of this and get the idea of when we man up our faith, when we woman up our faith, then Jesus responds. I'm going to kind of leave it there and let you study God's word. I mean, he's not going to tell us? Yep. Verse 30. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away, spread his fame through all that district. Actually, I could totally see why. I mean, I think I'd be kind of excited myself. And a little bit confused, why not? We'll just leave it there because that's all that Matthew says. And then the last one, Jesus gives speech to the mute. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute, mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, boo, said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Seriously, boys? Two chapters of healing events by Jesus. 
And Matthew concludes with what we have as the end of chapter 9 with four verses. A saw and a said notation. By the way, I think this is both the conclusion of 8 and 9 and the introduction to chapter 10. And at the outset this morning, I said that Matthew tells us something from a high-level view of chapters 8 and 9 that are absolutely foundational as followers and disciple-makers for Christ. Let's look and see what he says. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I think Matthew is bringing back what he said in chapter four, and he's kind of uh, bringing almost this parenthetic statement again, helping us understand. He's emphasizing and showing us Jesus is preaching, is teaching, and is healing. Now look. Verse 36. When he, he who? Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm gonna pause there. Matthew. A Jewish tax collector. That meant that he was one in his own community of his own people that was highly despised. He was viewed as a traitor. He's already made reference to himself in all of this as someone who's called to follow and he follows him. And yet someone who has been in that situation and then comes to meet Christ, what is one of the things that absolutely astounds a person in that situation who meets someone like Jesus? Answer, that they love him. That this rabbi would spend time with the tax collector and all his sinner friends. I gotta tell you, I love that. Love that. By the way, this compassion is not a pity. It's a deep sense of draw. Paul summarizes his ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. He wraps that whole verse explaining how he did ministry with this idea of my love for you, how dear you became to me. By the way, he didn't do ministry to them because he already had a dearness with them. No, he loved people. Give me any people and I love them because God loves them and I will pour my life and the gospel into them and eventually they will even become dear. That's what 1 Thessalonians 2.8 is saying, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He is preaching, repent. He is teaching to turn everything inside out and upside down. And he is not the all-truth guy. He is the Ephesians 1, truth in love, with compassion.
passion. This is not a momentary series of ideas. Uh, I think Matthew is giving us a sense and pulling it together here at the end that when he sees crowds, when he sees people, he has a sense of draw to them that is filled with a love for them. I think sometimes we can look at people and think, oh, they're a bunch of schmucks to be annoyed with. Or a bunch of suckers to prey upon. Or saps to dupe. That never, ever was in the character or the mindset of Jesus Christ. Never. You are never a schmuck to him. You are never a sucker to him. You are never a sap to him. Revelation chapter one, he loves you. Yeah, but you don't know what a schmuck I am. You may know, but he doesn't look at you like that. He looks at you with compassion. By the way, what does the text tell us? He looks at them with compassion like sheep who are harassed and helpless. Harassed. They're harassed in oppression. They're harassed by overlording bullies. They're harassed in their own broken condition. And he knows that. They're harassed people. They're broken people. And by the way, they're helpless people. In their brokenness, they're completely helpless to get themselves out of it all. They're defenseless, they're vulnerable, they're unable to resolve their situation like sheep are unable to rescue themselves from wolves. And he looks at them and he doesn't go, saps. He looks at them and he is drawn to. He feels for. He loves them. He is not the preacher, teacher, all truth, no love. He is the preacher, teacher, 100% love. And I don't know what kind of background you come from. I don't even know how you may think about him today. But you need to understand that he is all that. We have a tendency to pick which one we like the most, by the way. He is all of that. Repent! Repent! By the way, his economy will grab a hold and turn us inside out and upside down. And know this, in all of that, there's a compassion for you. He loves you. List on the screen. He cleanses, he heals, he cures, he calms, he liberates, he remedies, he makes well, he gives sight to, he gives speech to. These are all restoring works. By the way, this is just a taste of the full restoring work of the Savior. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, thank you God, neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, thank you, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and there is an already not yet reality to this. He has not just come to teach and preach, he has come to restore. And that restoration is shown as an example in the restoring, healing work of Christ. By the way, when you look at scripture, you don't see this kind of healing to this kind of magnitude in the Old Testament. You don't see this kind of healing ministry work uh, uh, that you see later in the New Testament in the epistles after the gospels, no matter what the TV people say. This is something that is uniquely a dynamic of Christ is showing us here that when he comes to do a work, he comes to do a restoring work. And that is gonna build to a complete and final and full work of restoration. We are not gonna be stuck like we're stuck now forever. And there's hope in that, isn't there? I mean, I tell you, I want to be, as a broken person, I want to be drawn to someone who restores, and this is the one who restores. The gospel, Jesus Christ, restores. And then lastly, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He saw them and had compassion, and then he said something. Out of the compassion for people, he calls his own to enter in that ministry with him. What kind of ministry? If you will, a preaching repent, a teaching. His economy is turning us upside down and inside out, and with a compassion for people, a genuine love for people, broken people all around. The harvest is plentiful, labors are few. But what is the exact call of the text? Answer, to pray. By the way, I don't think he is just saying this to his 12 disciples. I think at this point in time he's referring to a group of followers. And then what comes next? Interesting, next Sunday. He sees people, harassed, helpless people. And the characterization of our Messiah is that he has compassion for. And that has not changed. That is just as true today as it was then. And we are seeing examples, physical examples, of how the compassionate Savior restores people. And that's his call. Do you know the restoring work of Christ? That all of sin, all are broken? that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's a calling. It's calling for. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am awed and stunned by your kind, loving, gracious compassion.
you have hard truths to tell, hard calls to preach. But in it all, they are coming out of a reality of compassion and love. And that means that they are marvelous and fantastic. And you have just given us a whole listing of these healing works, these restoring works that you do. These are just physical restoration works. They're just, they're, they're just an example of, they're, they're just a picture of the reality that you are not just doing a restoring work on helping people to talk who can't talk. You're about something far, far, far greater than that. You're about a restoring work that goes all the way down to the broken condition of our souls. And not because we're losers, but because you love us. And we just rejoice in that fact. Oh, Savior, thank you. Father, thank you for how you have done a redeeming work in the lives of people. And God, I would pray if there's anyone in here this morning who doesn't know what it is to have a real viable relation that has not entered into relationship with Christ like this. It is more than just an idea. It is a person that we enter into relationship with through the work of the cross. And if there's someone who doesn't know what that is, doesn't have what that is, oh God, I pray they would ask. And that they would understand that your arms are not crossed and your face is not irritated with them and annoyed with them and disgusted with them. But in fact, your arms are wide open and your hands are just calling to come. And may they know that. And may they receive that. And may they have that. And for those of us who have received you as our Savior, who know who you are, oh God, may we just even right now, may we just revel in the compassionate work of you.